Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Ratchet Book Club, Hood Classics, Good Classics, Me. I'm Derek, 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Um, look, 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 look here. Ha, see what I did there? Look at here. Y'all can leave a review on Podchaser. Cool thing about that is you can leave a review for a show or an episode. Um, you can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can leave a review on Stitcher. I don't give a fuck. Just leave a review. Let people know how dope I am. Like, seriously. I'm not just saying that to, like, sound facetious or anything. I'm really fucking dope. And you should let people know. So, what I found out is that if y'all motherfuckers tell your friends and family directly to listen to my shit, they gonna bump my shit. Just to get you to fuck out their face, they gonna bump my shit. So... Uh, shout out to uh, Campfire Classics. They're telling folks to have five people spread the word about their show. It's their uh, podcast uh, pyramid scheme, which is that that's 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 fetch. That's cute. Um, I don't need y'all to tell five people. Just tell somebody like it, the numbers optional. I'm not even saying that to be uh, to downplay what they do or anything like that. Just let motherfuckers know. I'm in the building. I'm in the building and I'm feeling myself. I'm feeling. Ah, whew. Anyhow, I appreciate y'all. Um, in the last episode, we got through like 11 goddamn chapters. I told you they were short ep- or short chapters. So I'm excited to see what I can do next. Chapter 26. Just walk away. Like most deals, it sounds too good to be true, but Tim doesn't see where he has a better choice, so he takes it. So, the cowboy pulls his Indians off, they pick up their wounded, and Tim keeps his finger on the trigger until they're a long way off down on the flats and headed away. They'll stow the wounded guy away somewhere, and the cowboy will just tell Fat Brian that, sorry, he just couldn't find Bobby Z. That's the deal, anyway, and Tim doesn't believe it for a second. But he's got the kid to think about. And whatever sleazy trick Johnson has in mind, it gives him a better chance than sitting in that cage till he runs out of food and water. You shot that guy, Kit says. Like, matter of fact, Tim thinks. Not like he's upset about it. Nah, Tim answers. I pretended to shoot him, and he pretended to be wounded. That's the game. Oh, Kit says. Tim knows the kid's pretending to believe it, so he pretends to believe the kid believes it, because that seems to make it easier on both of them. We gonna stay in this cave? Kid asks. 
I don't know yet, Tim says. What do you think? I think we should get out of here. Tim thinks it's over for a few seconds. It'll be better to wait until night and then go, but it leaves him with a long afternoon to wait it out, and maybe Johnson decides that he comes back with reinforcements. Let's wait a little bit, Tim says, then adds, if that's okay with you, Cyclops. Wait for the sun to go down a little. Okay with me, Wolverine, Kit says. Neither of them think this is a comic book anymore, but it's easier to deal with this way. So they sit it out and wait. Wait until Johnson and his posse become small dots on the desert flats. Wait until the noontime sun sinks a little. Sit and wait and talk X-Men, Batman, Silver Surfer, radio-controlled boats, which Tim knows like shit about, and dirt bikes. Talk about everything but their situation, which just ain't no comic book. Finally, Tim hands Kit one of the two water bottles and says, Drink it. All of it? All of it. Tim affirms. In the desert, you store water in your belly, not in the canteen. Not like in the movies where they ration it and take a sip every other day. No wonder the dumb fucks die in the movies, Tim thinks. They got the water in their canteen and not in their bellies. Die of thirst with water in their canteens. Both fucking guessed it. Some joke. Guzzle it. Tim says. That's bad manners, Kit says, delighted. Tim's not real impressed, having seen what passed for good behavior around Kit's set of adults. Like, don't double snort off the same 20, and foreplay only in front of the kids, please. How your legs feel, he asks Kit. Fine. Truth? The kid puts his hand up like he's about to take the stand. Something he saw in a movie, must be. Something Tim saw other people, cops mostly, do in court, because he never had the chance to take a stand in his own defense. Lawyers always thought it inadvisable. Only one of the problems of being guilty. The kid interrupts his reverie. Why are you asking about my legs? Because we have some climbing to do. A lot of climbing, Tim thinks. Because the easiest thing to do would be to go back down the canyon, onto the flats and follow the wash out of the desert. Any idiot knows that a riverbed, even a dry one, will take you out of the desert. They'll be waiting for me in the wash. So, we're just going to have to climb out. It'll be nice to have a map, Tim thinks. Of course, it would have been nice to have never gotten in this mess in the first place. But, that was another deal, and a done one. So it's best not to think about it and just concentrate on getting out of this deal. Life, he thinks. One shitty deal after another. He looks at the boy and thinks, You don't know what you've got to look forward to, kid. You sure you want to come with me? Tim asks. I'm sure, the kid says quickly. Looks scared for the first time. Scared that one more grown-up's thinking of dumping him. Because I could bring you back if you want. They'd kill you, Kit says. No game, 
No pretend. No comic book. No way, Tim says. I'm tough to kill. Ask Stink Dog. Kid looks up at him with those big brown eyes. I want to come with you, he says. Let's climb, Tim answers. They've only gone a few feet when he asks, What are we, Marines or X-Men? Kit thinks it over, then asks, Can't we be both? Why not? Cool. A mutant Marine, Tim thinks. Cool. Chapter 27 One way's not all that busted up about being dumped in Dana Point. For one thing, the garbage is better, he thinks as he searches through a dumpster behind the Chart House restaurant. He finds the remnants of a nice Caesar salad, some overly buttered Texas toast that he decides to eat anyway, and some leftover poached salmon. There's any number of steak bones, half-eaten prime ribs, and hunks of cheeseburger. But one way he doesn't eat red meat because there's health issues to consider. He picks a chart house not only for the cuisine, but for the view. It sits on the bluff and offers a serene and splendid view of Dana Point Harbor with its hundreds of yachts, pleasure boats, and sports fishing crafts. One way knows boats. Or thinks he does, anyway. Because somewhere back in time, before what he considers the Enlightenment, he had his own charter license and sailed the Teristas around the Caribbean. He dimly recalls it as a foul old time of sweet rum and tangy Jamaican boo, sailing the bourgeois from one port to another and occasionally nailing their wives, daughters, and sweethearts. A sweet time, but unenlightened. Still, he enjoys the view, likes to watch as he dines the boats come in and out of the harbor sailing along the long stone jetty that separates the harbor from the raw Pacific. Likes to look at the boats and critique their structures and lines. Also, he decides that somewhere amongst those hundreds of boats is hidden the boat of Bobby Z. Must be. Otherwise, the fates, the cops, the ignorant tools thereof, would not have driven him to Dana Point just on this auspicious day. Finishing his entree, he descends the bluffs and walks down to the harbor itself, to the broad pier that supports several restaurants. Finds in a trash can that treated treats, a still cold ice cream cone, chocolate, snatched from a child by an irritated father with stained white slacks. His mustache and beard smeared with chocolate. He starts his bit with the tourists. Can't help himself. The words boil inside of him and bubble over out of his mouth just as the Japanese tourists start spilling out of their bus. One way is there to greet them. Welcome to Dana Point, he shouts at a startled rubber product salesman from Kyoto. He takes the worried man's arm by the elbow and guides him down to the pier. Sometime home of the legendary Bobby Z, who even as we speak is wending his way home to us. Bobby Z disappeared in the ocean mist and shall sail away again. But first, he has come to tell us the good news, my friend. How do I know? One way asked rhetorically, because the rubber product salesman from Kyoto was too shocked to ask anything. Well, might you ask, and well, might I answer? 
One way leans in and whispers with foul breath into the man's ear. Many years ago, when just a young sailor, I was second mate above a sloop that piled the wilder reaches of the southern sea. Cargo we had on board this otherwise sheer pleasure craft, I do confess it. Cargo that would have gained the unfavorable attention of government officials if ever stopped and searched in port or open water. Not to mention pirates, my friend. Pirates. A desperate tour guide tries to head one way off because he's leading the group the wrong way. But he's pleased to have an additional audience and just says to the guide, Hello, I was just telling our friend here about how I came to actually speak to Bobby Z. I knew him, you know. No, 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 no. "'Twas on the good ship something or other, and I was sitting on the deck one soft silky night, splicing a line. My hands busy, my lips around a roach of the sweetest Hawaiian boo. When I'm joined by a man whom you would otherwise think was just a youth, except even then, he had the bearing of a king. "'You're ahead of me, I see. Yes, Bobby Z it was, and he sat down beside me, a humble sailor I, and... We said words to each other as we watched the stars sparkle on the phosphorescent water. We spoke as men. I was deeply moved. The next day, we sailed to an uncharted island. One way stops not only because the tour guide is yelling for help and the Japanese tourists are stacking up like cordwood at the edge of the pier, but because he sees a tall, skinny man with thin hair unlock the gate to slip ZZ and hurriedly walk down. He watches as the man hurries to the very last boat, a small but elegant sloop, get on board and go down into the cabin. One way juts his bearded chin to the sky and sniffs the air. As I was saying, he starts, but the hand on his elbow is not the tour guide, but the security guard, whose gloved hand soon turns him over to the custody of the Dana Point police. On the drive back to Laguna, one way tells the cops, Bobby Z is returned, you know. Sure he has, the driver laughs. He has, one way yelps indignantly. How do you know, the cop asks. He's losing his good humor and is just a tad annoyed that the Laguna cops keep dropping one way off on the PCH just south of the town border. Why can't they drive him north for a change, where he could be a pain in Newport Beach's ass? How do you know? The cop repeats. I smelled it in the air. Oh, and I saw his high priest, one way said. I saw the monk. Yippee. The first time I saw him, I didn't recognize him, one way confesses. But when I saw him get on the boat, that cinched it, huh? Definitely. The cop pulls over just across the Laguna line and opens the door. Out, he says. That cinches it, one way thinks as he starts walking towards downtown Laguna. Cinches it. He likes the cop's words and adopts them. That cinches it, one way tells himself. The monk getting on the boat Cinches it. And the name of the boat, the Nowhere. Pure Z, a legend. Chapter 28. 
You had Bobby and you let him go? Brian screeches. He's red in the face and Johnson thinks he might have a heart attack and die right there. Johnson wouldn't half mind. Would be a lot of people show up for the funeral too. Mexicans just love a good party and there'd be a lot of singing and dancing at this one. Might even put a toe in himself, he thinks. He had the high ground, Johnson explains. The fuck does that mean, Brian whines. Means it would have been a bitch to dig him out of there. It means you were too chicken to do it. Maybe, Johnson shrugs. He thinks of taking Brian out right there. Just pulling his pistol and putting one right between those piggy eyes. We did have a man shot, Johnson says instead. Big yip. Don't worry, we got him patched up. Brian's worried though. Not about some lame Indian, but about the Hidalgo across the border. Brian's eyes are bugged out and he's huffing and puffing and Johnson hopes again that his heart will tap out and save them all a lot of trouble. And we didn't let him get away, Johnson draws. Rojas looped back. He's trailing him. What's he going to do? Brian asks. Send up smoke signals? Gave him a radio. And? He headed up Hapaha Canyon. Didn't he shoot your man in Hapaha Canyon? Yep, Johnson says patiently. Then he kept heading up Hapaha Canyon. What did he do that for? Johnson takes a deep breath. He's running out of patience. Because he probably figured that's the opposite of what we'd expect him to do. Yeah, but Hapaha Canyon's just going to take him up to Hapaha Flats. He don't know that, though. I guess not, Brian's thinking real hard. Can you take him on the flats? I expect so, Johnson says. Of course, the flats ain't so much flat as they are like a bowl. Should be easy then, Brian says. He likes the idea of Bobby Z trapped in a bowl. Hell of a lot easier if I could just shoot him, Johnson thinks. Or send Rojas in to cut his throat. But that makes Johnson think about the boy, and he doesn't like thinking about that. Think we could surprise Mr. Z on Hapaha Flats? Brian asks no one in particular. His morale's rapidly improving. Smile spreading across his fat face. Maybe Willie would like to help, Brian purrs. After all, he owes Bobby a dose of pain and humiliation, n'est-ce pas? I think we should make an afternoon of it. I'll do the Foreign Legion tutorial thing. Kepi, neck scarf, Jodford slacks. And Willie, I'm sure Willie would love to put the ultralight to some practical use for a change. Johnson worries when Brian's in this voice. It usually means that something dumb is coming up. What are you thinking about? Johnson asks. Brian's smile is all over his face as he hums that tune from the old Vietnam movie. Death from the sky, Brian answers. Death from the sky, Johnson wonders. The hell is that supposed to mean? Chapter 29 Tim and Kit stand on the rim of a big bowl and look down. Holy shit, Tim says. 
It's beautiful, Kit gasps. Five miles of flowers bloom beneath him. A bowl of flowers. Tim's seen springtime in the desert before, but he's never seen anything like this. Fucking Mardi Gras down there in that bowl. Bright reds, purples, yellows, golds, and colors he doesn't know the words for. Doesn't know if there are words. In contrast to the usual desert brown, these colors glow from a carpet of green. Tim knows his heavy brush. Sage, smoke tree, desert tobacco, chrysote, brittle bush, and mesquite. But from here, it looks like a green carpet. Under thousands and thousands of wildflowers. Like whatever rain the desert gets is poured down into this bowl and voila, springtime. Like give some acid crazed painter a five square mile canvas and let him paint his craziness out. If you can make your eyes cross, Kid is saying, it looks like a, what do you call it? Kaleidoscope? Yeah, kaleidoscope. Tim sees the kid form the words with his lips a couple times and memorize it. Tim looks out across a crazy painting. Smack dab in the center sits a huge goddamn rock. Looks to be about the size of a big house. Like it's been plopped out there like some goofy lawn ornament. It's like a big movie shot, Tim thinks. But he's not wild about seeing the close-up. Not at all crazy about walking down to the bowl because what happens is that people sit on the rim of the bowl and pick you off. Or they come down into the bowl with more guys than you have. And shit, he has one little kid. And I'll flank you. And you don't have the high ground and it's adios, motherfucker. But there isn't any other choice but to double back, and that isn't another choice. The canyon walls are too steep to climb with a kid in tow. Besides which, the kid is tired. Game, but almost played out. And Tim knows he'll probably end up carrying the boy most of the way across. Also knows that if he had any fucking brains at all, he'd dump the kid. But the fact that he doesn't have any brains at all has already been well established. So there isn't any choice but to cross this bowl into the hills on the far side. There's a lot of advantages to living alone, Tim thinks. One of them being that you usually get to live longer. Let's go into the kaleidoscope, Tim says. Cool. I like kaleidoscopes. It's going to be hot. The kid shrugs. It's the desert. Tim feels a little better about things once they're down the bowl, because the brush is so high it would be hard to see them unless you had an airplane or a helicopter or something. And they're on some sort of game trail or something, Tim figures. Maybe where the coyote hunt jackrabbits or the deer move through. So it's easy walking and the kid is doing okay so far. And there's color everywhere they look, near and far. The fiery reed blooms of the Ocotillo cactus. The bright yellow flowers on the chrysote. The greenish yellow flowers of silver chola. And the bright rose colored blooms of the beaver tail. There's desert lavender and indigo bush and the green spiky yucca and a tall plant with yellow flowers. The century plant that legend says blooms only once in a hundred years. And maybe that's a good luck sign, Tim thinks. Plant only blooms once every hundred years and here we are to see it. 
That has to be some kind of luck. And I'm due for a little of the good variety. He hears the airplane before he sees it. Chapter 30. Johnson's standing on the rim of the bowl, watching a little ultralight putt-putt over the desert floor. Brian's standing right beside him in his French Foreign Legion gear, peering through binoculars, looking like that sergeant from that movie he likes so much. Brian says the sergeant in Bo Guest is the first great homosexual villain in cinematic history, but Johnson wouldn't know a thing about that. Johnson's watching Wooly putting around that ultralight aircraft of his, which looks to Johnson like an aerial go-kart. Sure ain't nothing he will want to fly in. He looks like a hawk circling his prey, Brian says without taking his eyes from the glasses. He looks like a moron, Johnson thinks. He himself has more confidence in old Rojas trotting behind old Bobby Z and keeping his distance. Rojas don't need no idiot German zooming around the sky relaying radio messages as to Bobby's position. Rojas already knows Bobby's goddamn position. But you give a boy a toy and the boy just has a play with it, Johnson thinks. Brian's too chicken shit to go up in a little airplane himself, and Heinz or Hans or Shithead or whatever his name is just dying to give the thing a try and says he knows all about them from the Bavarian Aerialist Club or some such thing. So here they are, watching the circus. He hears the German's voice over the radio whisper, The subject is proceeding at 27 degrees south-southwest. And Johnson wonders, what the hell is he whispering for? Who's going to hear him? The goddamn hummingbirds? He's proceeding at 27 degrees south-southwest, Brian says breathlessly. I heard, Johnson says. Relate to Rojas. Brian orders. Johnson knows Rojas wouldn't know 27 degrees from his own asshole, but does what he's told. The only harm is that it'll annoy Rojas, but who gives a shit whether Rojas is annoyed? He hears Brian ask the German, Do we have him trapped? Yeah, we have him trapped. Brian's so gleeful it about makes Johnson sick. Let's fuck with his head, Brian says. Johnson's not sure what that means, but he sees the ultralight swoop down. Sees the fucking idiot lean out and wave. Then the fucking idiot starts shooting. Chapter 31 Don't look up, Tim tells Kit. But, I know, Tim says, but don't look up. Fucking ultralight has them pinned. Goofy pilot flying right over them. Leaning out the cockpit, winging pistol shots. Dumb fuck, Tim thinks. He knows there's a kid down here. And the kid's scared now. Tim can see it in his eyes. Shit, Tim says. Kit nods. Magneto, Tim says ominously, naming the head bad guy from X-Men. Kit brightens right away. What are we going to do? He asks, his voice urging with mock desperation. We're going to run to that big rock, Tim says. It has a force field over it, and Magneto can't get through it. Let's go. They start running. The gang takes the boy past his tired legs, and they run with the crazy pilot zooming overhead, whooping and shouting and shooting. And Tim knows it's hard enough to hit a moving target with a pistol when you're standing still. 
Never mind when you're flying a toy plane. So he's not all that worried about the bullets. But still. And the whooping has a funny sound to it. Like whooping with a German accent like some old cable movie villain. And Tim decides it must be the German from the pool. So this is personal. Okay with me, he thinks. Now the German singing that da 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 da. Death from the sky music the assault chopper guys used to blast from speakers in the Gulf. Scared the Iraqis shitless. And blasting away and Tim's thinking, these guys are nuts. We better get to that rock. Not that he knows what he's going to do when he gets there, but it has to be better than running like jackrabbits from a hawk. He decides they need to get there faster, so he stops and shouts, Cyclops, hop on my back. I'm okay. I know, but your super magnetized spinal protection armor will shield both of us. Good idea, Wolverine. Fucking A, Tim thinks. Kit hops on his back and they start running again. Tim giving it his best simplified sprint like on the obstacle course at Pendleton. Like some motherfucking D.I. is yelling at him. And firing live rounds is a motivational tool. Pretty soon, he can see the rock close up. And maybe there is something to the century plant business. Because the rock looks like good luck. With that big split running smack down the center. Chapter 32 Where's he going? Brian asks urgently. Looks like he ran the split rock, Johnson says. This is good news. Smart-ass damn Bobby Z just ran into a trap. Ran right into the middle of a 50-foot-high boulder and there's only two ways out. One end of the narrow crack or the other. And it'll be real easy to seal off one end and go on the other. Boy might as well have run into a corral. This game, Johnson thinks, is about over. Do we know that? Brian asks. He's concerned because he sees the ultralight pull up, gain altitude, and start to circle again. Are you sure we didn't lose him? No. He's in there. And come night, we'll take him out of there. But Brian's jabbering into his radio. Confirm the subject's position. Confirm the subject's position. He gets his binoculars up again and watches the ultralight circle to rock. Chapter 33 Tim's watching him too. Lying on his back in the split, which is about as wide across as two small men standing shoulder to shoulder. And he's looking up at the sky. The rock is so fucking weird, he thinks as he tries to catch his breath. Like God took an axe and just slammed it down on the rock and cut it in half. And there's weird little pictures carved in the walls. Why are you lying down? Kid asks. Catch my breath. Are you out of shape? Yep. The kid lies down beside him. They watch the ultralight appears in the crack of the blue sky above and then disappears again. He's pretty high up there, Kit says. Do you think he spotted us? Not exactly, Tim answers. But if he knows where we're not, pretty soon he's going to know where we are. Huh? I don't know. Tim says, listen, no offense, but I don't want to talk. I want to catch my breath. Me too. The ultralight appears again, and Tim figures he about has the guy's timing down. 
one or two more orbits and I'll have my breath nice and steady. He waits until there's no shudder at all in his chest and says, Do me a favor, Cyclops. Close your eyes. You mean my eye. Yeah, okay, your eye. Why? Just do it. Tim thinks he could hear the guy laughing up there, but maybe it's just his imagination. Doesn't make any fucking difference as he slowly raises the rifle to his shoulder, sights straight up, and waits. He sees the ultralight straight above, high up. Tim hums, da 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 da, quietly to himself and squeezes the trigger. Chapter 34 Johnson doesn't hear the gunshot, just the engine sputtering. Sees black smoke belching out of the ultralight and can just make out the German about halfway out of the cockpit like he's looking for somewhere to jump. You have a parachute? He asks Brian. Too low for a parachute, Brian murmurs. Then the ultralight sputters, stops in midair for a second and just drops from the sky. Like a shot bird, Johnson thinks. It falls on the far side of Split Rock, so they can't see it crash. You think you could still be alive? Brian asks. Shit. He must have fell a hundred feet, Johnson says. A second later, they hear the explosion, then see a tower of red and orange flame shoot up. Johnson can't help himself. Your friend, he says. He wasn't one of them rocket scientists, was he? Shut up. I mean, back in the old country? Brian's all red in the face. Looks like a tomato that's about to go kablooey. He's trying to sputter some words, but nothing's coming out of his mouth but flecks of spit. Satisfying as it might have been to see Brian expire from a massive coronary, Johnson figures the potential trouble outweighs the possible entertainment value, so he decides he better say something. I don't know, Commander, Johnson draws, but I'd say it's about time to send in the infantry, wouldn't you? Unless, Johnson thinks, you got a speedboat or something you want to try out. Chapter 35 Kit hears a crash, too. What happened to Magneto? he asks. I guess he fell, Tim says. Kit thinks about this for a few seconds, then says, Like Icarus. Tim's impressed. You read the book? Kit shakes his head. I saw the cartoon on TV. Oh. Still, it's a pretty good story, Tim thinks. What a practical lesson. You get too close to the muzzle end of an M16, it's very likely to melt your dumbass wings. How old did you say you are? He asks Kit. Six, the boy insists. Elizabeth says going on 26. I'll bet. What's she mean? She means you're old for your age, Tim says. Oh. Tim takes the entrenching tool off his belt, unscrews the blade, locks it back down and hands it to Kit. In fact, Tim says, you're so big, you can start digging. Digging? 
a hole. Why? To sleep in, Tim lies. What he's really thinking, except he doesn't want to scare the boy to death, is that unless Willie was out there playing Von Richthofen all by himself, Johnson and the boys would be coming for them tonight. And while the split in the rock seemed like a good idea at the time, like a lot of things, Tim thought ruefully, it also meant that they're trapped. The smart thing for Brian and his boys to do would be to wait them out, but Brian didn't have the discipline to do that. The next best thing would be to climb on top of that rock and lob explosives down the split. But if they still wanted him alive, they wouldn't do that. So, they'll be coming in. And if the bad news is there's only two ways out of this rock, the good news is there's only two ways in. But only one of me. Because even if the kid could shoot, and Mr. Maguka hardly missed shooting down this crack, Tim isn't going to ask a child to kill anybody. Kid probably has nightmares enough of his own already. So he digged the kid in nice and deep. Safe as he could be if the rounds start bouncing off the walls. Gonna be like fighting in a hallway. Also, he has to figure out how to make himself be two troops. Isn't gonna be easy, he thinks. Especially for a monumental fuck-up. Keep digging, Tim says. I'm gonna get some firewood. We're gonna have a fire? Kid asks, enthused. Yep. Tim says, at least one fire. Chapter 36. The kid gets tired of digging pretty quickly, so Tim takes over. Digs a foxhole Hulk Hogan could hide in. Then he weaves together some smoke tree branches to make a lid and lays it on top of the hole. What's that for? Kid asks. To keep you warm. What about you? I'm warm-blooded. Tim takes some of the mesquite he's gathered and prepares a campfire. Then he piles dry brush across the split at the far end of the rock. Kit gets bored watching him do this and spends his time looking over the carvings in the wall. Who do you think made these? He asks. Some old Indians, Tim shouts. How do you know? They're all over these deserts, Tim answers. They're called pictographs. Oh. Indians made them. I'm going to get in my fort. Good idea. He watches the kid lie down the hole and pull the lid over himself. Hopes the kid will sleep because there's a lot of work to do and he really doesn't want the boy seeing it. He finds himself a forked branch and digs it into the ground. Then he takes the pistol and duct tapes it to the fork, so it's as steady as it's going to get. He digs a spool of wire out of the canvas bag, ties one end around the trigger, cocks the hammer, and then carefully counter-wraps and stretches the wire ankle-high across the split. He brings the wire back across and ties it tightly onto the branch. So there's one shot, he thinks. I'll get off at the back door without having to be there. Make the motherfucker jump through fire to get shot in the chest. He scoops the gunpowder out of three rounds and pours a line of cordite from the pile of brush back to the center of the split. Then he takes the entrenching tool and digs a shallow trench a little further in. Not as deep as Kit's hole, just deep enough for him to lie in and not necessarily be seen in the dark. 
finishes that and then digs himself a narrow, shallow firing position at the other end of the rock. Tries to think of anything else he could do to give them a better chance and can't. So he puts his mind to why old Don Huertero was so sweaty to have Bobby Z alive when it would be so much easier to have him dead. Decides that it must be because Bobby has something he wants. Knows something he can't tell if he's dead. What did Elizabeth said? You took something from him? And Don Huertero wants it back. And if I ever want to live through this, I better find out what it is. Locate it and give it back. World ain't big enough to hire from a guy like Huertero forever. Then he hears Kit crying softly. Crying quietly. Like a kid who's used to crying so no one will hear. You okay? Tim asks. I miss my mom. She'll be out of the hospital soon, Tim says. I'll see that you get to her. Tim doesn't have a fucking clue just how he's going to do that, but decides that he will. She's not my mom, Kit says. Sure she is. I heard Elizabeth say. That's not what Elizabeth meant. What's she mean? She meant that maybe Olivia isn't always a great mom. Oh, sorry. It's okay. Tim sits with this for a minute, then says, Why don't you get up and we'll cook some dinner? Yummy Q rations. Like Marines eat? Afraid so, kid. Yeah. Okay. So Tim lights the fire and it has that great mesquite smell and they heat up some Q rations that are turkey something with rice and have the energy bars for dessert. They tell each other stories to pass the time and Kit's better at it than Tim is. Kid has an imagination that just won't quit and actually entertains Tim with a story about an island somewhere full of treasure and the pirate that hid it there. The pirate's name is Bobby and Tim doesn't know if he should be like flattered or freaked out. Chapter 37 Johnson rolled a cigarette as he waits for the moon to come up. Sits up on the ridge looking down a split rock and thinks that Bobby Z has his dick stuck in the ringer this time. Johnson feeling pretty relaxed. For one thing, Brian got bored and went home, which is a damn good thing, because Johnson thinks Brian was going to be more trouble than help in a fight. Also, Johnson thinks he's about had it with this take him alive shit. Come to think of it, he's had it with all Brian's shit. Johnson spent 40 years of his life doing real ranching, which in the desert took some genuine skill, shifting cattle around the sparse foliage until the stupid damn beasts were fat enough to sell for enough money to keep the bankers off the ranch. Pulled that trick off for 40 damn years, and never got rich, but had enough for beans, coffee, tobacco, and whiskey. He had his land, and his cattle, and his damn self-respect. And then the government booted the ranchers off the federal land. No more grazing cattle lest they ruin the pristine vegetation of the natural desert. And that just kicked it for the small ranchers like Johnson. The bankers were on him like stink on shit. Took the ranch and everything on it. Didn't leave him with as much as a horse to ride away on. And, Johnson thinks... 
I end up renting myself out to this fat fuck on this so-called ranch. Ranch my calloused ass. He finishes rolling his smoke, lights it up, and as he takes in that first relaxing draw, he's thinking that they'll just take old Bobby about any way they can get him. And the boy, well now. Rojas is sitting beside him like some mean old dog. Johnson rolls a smoke for Rojas and hands it to him. Lights it for him and says, We'll wait for the moon. Rojas doesn't say nothing. Rojas ain't big on words anyway. Tends to be a bit spare in the word department when he's sober. Plus, Johnson thinks, I ain't really said nothing and he's responding to. And Rojas is sulking. Johnson could just tell sitting next to the man that the man is steaming. Doesn't really blame him. Rojas spent a whole hot day tracking the man and the boy, and then the boss brings in some asshole in a toy airplane and fucks everything up. And Johnson's thinking what Rojas is thinking. They should have just let Rojas run him down and kill him. It's what you got yourself a Rojas for. Otherwise, what's the use of having him? He's such a pain in the ass to bail out of jail all the time. Just a goddamn danger to himself and others. Johnson says, You know, I've been thinking. I'm not so sure we need to take this old boy alive. I'm thinking if you have the chance, you just might as well kill him. But Johnson hasn't reckoned on just how pissed off Rojas really is. Figures it out when Rojas says, I take him alive. No, really, you don't. Rojas holds that big knife and twists it in the starlight. I stick this, he says, into his neck, and the man feels nothing ever again. Jesus shit, Johnson thinks. The man is alive, Rojas continues, but when he shits himself, he doesn't know. That's some old Indian thing? I think we take Bobby Z to Don Huertero that way, Rojas says. I think that'll make Don Huertero happy. I expect. Me too, Rojas says. Johnson stares out to where the rising moon is turning Kapaha Flats into a silver bowl. Well, you do what you want, Johnson says. Me? I'm telling the boys to go in shooting. To wound, of course. If you get to Bobby before a bullet does, well, that's your good luck. Luck, Rojas spits. I don't need no airplane to fly. Johnson doesn't know what the hell he means by that, but lets it go with some mystical Indian shit. The is always like that, turning themselves into coyotes and badgers and jackrabbits and shit. At least when they've been at the Mescal. Well, if you can take him alive, Johnson says. He takes a few moments to get to the next part. The boy, on the other hand, Rojas, the mean son of a bitch, waits him out. Wants to make him say it. Johnson's more stubborn. He sucks on his smoke and watches the moon rise. Finally, Rojas laughs. The boy, he says. He takes the knife and draws it in front of his throat. 
You want the boy's head? Rojas asks. Johnson can tell Rojas is fucking with him. I don't think that'll be necessary, Johnson says. He gets his night scope out and looks down into the flat. Can see his boys getting in position around split rock. Give it another half hour or so, and it'll be time to finish this thing. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Um, leave a review on Podchaser. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review on Stitcher. Tell your friends about the show. Force them to listen to the show. Listen to the show on the car while they're there. Make them like a living hostage. If you work at an automobile company and you can program stuff onto the radio, if that's your job, program Ratchet Book Club onto the uh, radio so then it's a set station. Yeah. Just enjoying myself. Enjoying this book. Like I said, I have now pretty much programmed myself to immediately, instantly change the words of uh, racial slurs and homophobic slurs in this book. So you'll never know it. Hopefully. Hopefully you don't ruminate too much on it. Uh, Buymeacoffee.com slash SSCast. Patreon.com slash Single Simulcast. Thank you again for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast.